Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today's episode is on growth. And so I guess I was thinking about a couple different kinds of growth. I was thinking about economic growth, which is sort of your area of expertise. I was thinking about personal growth and sort of the self-help culture that has grown up around it. And I was thinking about intellectual growth. So maybe we can start there by talking about each of those kinds of growth and how we see it emerging in this contemporary moment. One thing about growth in all of those aspects is that it has pretty much an overwhelmingly positive connotation, but I think that it's become such a positive way to frame economics or like your personal personal development or intellectual development um, that it's gotten way out of control. Mm. Like it's like growth at the expense of the environment. <laughs> Right, yeah. So the economic obsession with growth is obviously um, it's obviously out of control, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Like sometimes, like an increase in GDP, it's the peak, the pinnacle of what you should a government should be working to achieve um, economically. An increase in GDP, a lot of times that has no direct impact on the average. Um, individual in the United States. So you could have a decrease in GDP and the average individual in the United States would be better off. Yeah. Like, so this obsession with growth has kind of redirected economics from the efficient allocation of resources to like take care of people so that people can like survive and have like the best quality of life possible. A lot of the scholarship has just been diverted into like, how does a business grow? How does a government grow? It's become focused on this one very narrow set. And there's still like the positive connotation of growth, but it's just completely obliterated, like the nuance of what the implications of that are and like what growth actually means. I mean, I just, I've been seeing all these articles right now, like millennials are killing Applebee's and it's like, fuck Applebee's. Like, there's too much retail to me seems like this notion of growth at the expense of like everything else has created too much retail space. And so all of these, you know, corporations who had grown unchecked for so long are collapsing because demand is, is collapsing because of a whole bunch of other, un, you know, unaddressed social, social issues, whether that's like, you know, student loan debt or a lack of livable wage or segregation or whatever, it just seems to me that that unchecked growth has been really crazy. And in public education and higher ed, we've seen a ton of unchecked growth where we, we see these public institutions grow so big because they can take in so many more students for tuition dollars. But, you know, in the case where I work, there aren't enough classroom buildings, there aren't enough dorms, there aren't enough professors, right? So all of the other things have not kept up with the drive for student tuition dollars, which is that unplanned, unchecked growth. It's growth at all costs. I also agree that this sort of this Pollyanna, you know, version, this halo version of growth is a problem. I've also been thinking a lot about how that 
economic model gets translated into the personal and thinking about how people think about personal growth. And I guess on balance, I'm not opposed to personal growth in the abstract, but the, the whole entire proliferation of self-help culture, especially directed at women, I find pretty revolting, <laughs> you know, and thinking about how here's this huge economic boom in how to consume stuff that will make you fitter, stronger, happier, catch a man, more zen, more mindful. I'm not saying that all those things are inherently bad, you know, in a sense of scale. There's a scale to that, right? A social responsibility that we have to be good people. The drive to be more kind or more generous or uh, more inclusive or to practice political solidarity, those are good things. But I think that there is also sort of embedded in that self-help culture this notion of balance or or complementarity that is elusive and probably not real, that people are just like driving themselves towards some sort of state of, of perfection, social perfection that's unattainable. Right. It reminds me of our optimism conversation yeah. where there's like this expectation that you're always growing and developing personally, and that you have a positive attitude about it. And there's this like basically rote definition of optimism and of growth that's like completely positive. But there is actually that flip side where there's a flip side to it where people are being driven <laughs> um, crazy by yeah. it because there's no room to breathe. Maybe take a week where you're not developing personally in any way, like recharge. <laughs> yeah. like that's also fine. Just because you're not growing in that narrow sense of the word doesn't mean that's not good for you. I also think that there are like barriers to growth that people don't really talk about. And I guess I think about that because I'm a you know professor. And I look at a lot of people that I come into contact with who are refusing to grow, like in a sort of nihilistic way. And I see students who refuse to grow, who refuse to challenge ideas that are part of their upbringing or who are afraid of new information or who are overconfident as a way of hiding their insecurities. And I think those are probably problematic, though totally understandable responses to new information and new paradigms of learning. So I think probably for me the best way to think about personal growth is is in is in cultivating kind of openness towards different people and ideas. And on the one hand, that seems like really simple, but I spend a lot of time, especially with liberals who think that they're so open and tolerant and they can't possibly manage <laughs> any ideas that come into conflict with the way that they have thought about things always. And certainly I felt that in talking about what the, you know, electoral cycle looked like for the presidential election in 2016. I mean, just liberals refused to listen about information that contradicted their worldview about how people felt about Hillary Clinton or how people felt about Donald Trump. I spent a lot of time thinking about how narrow-minded liberalism is in ways that liberals accuse conservatives of being narrow-minded in this sort of absence of intellectual challenge. And so perhaps growth is not the way to frame it. Perhaps we shouldn't be framing things in terms of we have talked about resilience and grit. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about that. Maybe we should be talking about openness and solidarity and inclusivity as these like, you know, positive kinds of understanding of self. Right. And what the self should be driving towards in terms of community. 
there are stages of that, right? Like in psychology, they talk about four stages of intellectual growth. So it's like dependence, right? Where you're dependent on your parents or your teachers to tell you stuff about the world. And then emergence, where you're kind of figuring out right and wrong and authority and how to reason and how to make arguments and how to use warrants and data to help make claims. And then independence, right? When you start to find your personal truth and you start thinking as an individual and thinking about how the world is more gray than it is black and white and how ideas are much more interrelated than they are discrete. And then finally, interdependence, right? Where you think about contextual truths and standpoint and context and, you know, the complexity of issues as they relate to different people in different ways. I think as an American culture, if we zoom out, most, most of the culture is stuck in emergence and independence, right? <laughs> so it's like, I'm trying to figure out, I don't know what's real. Somebody tell me what's real. What's, you know, what is true and what is not true and what is fake news and what is not. And then, like, the hardcore libertarians were like, my personal truth is all that matters, right? Or, you know, the Randians were like, rational self-interest is the best thing. So I think most of America is stuck there and has not yet gotten to the interdependence. Like, how do my decisions affect my neighbor and why should I care about that? That's a crisis in maturity. It's a crisis in political maturity it's, and it's a crisis in social maturity, yeah? It's definitely a crisis in social maturity. There are a lot of incentives to stay at that stage of independence where you're really focused on your own your own personal needs and yeah standard growth that's a real thing you know people self-sabotage so hard but then if you don't try that. it's kind of like a weird excuse thing where it's like i'm not trying to do anything so then you don't it's like i didn't fail right i just don't respect that i just do not respect that at all as a mode of engagement yeah I mean, I also just think that there is a way that people self-sabotage their personal growth that is worth discussing um, the way in which they sort of refuse to mature or accept challenges or overcome adversity. And especially here in the South, it's like almost a geographic, especially in the South, it's almost a regional trait <laughs> that people self-sabotage and produce this kind of social inferiority that they can then use to to justify policies that hurt other people right? because they are too afraid or un, are unwilling to um, create space to hold different kinds of ideas in their minds and I guess I find that probably to be the most frustrating thing about living in the south is that I feel like that's a pervasive regional trait where people self-sabotage and refuse to grow, is that they calcify themselves, you know, in these extremely immature phases of knowledge and can't get out of them. I think there are, I mean, there are a lack of resources in the South, too. And there's, like, a, a way of softening the blow of a lack of social mobility or or lack of resources or a lack of opportunity. Um, it kind of softens the blow to self-sabotage. Yeah. You know, I also think it's evangelical capitalism, you know, sort of the gospel of wealth that happens in evangelical churches in the South, but then, you know, obviously it's spreading across the country where um, Christian spaces are used to consolidate ideology around consumption and um, acquisition. And I also think that that's a tremendous in influence in the South around how people think about 
what it means to participate in public culture and what it means to be part of a community of practice and what kinds of actual buy-ins like financial emotional or social buy-ins ideological certainly that they have to participate in to be part of their religious community and that I think is obviously totally nefarious and <laughs> problematic because then it's really hard to entangle you know those ideas of acquisition from um, the conversation about Christianity and what I think it does is short-circuit a real conversation about ethics. I mean the, the culture of accumulation is completely reframes growth right it has like a positive connotation but it's extremely negative because it centers growth around like individual attainment it doesn't center growth around like intimacy or yeah community building and christianity has the potential to do that but when it's so basically when it's like that model of evangelical capitalism, capitalism. i mean i also feel like there's you know we're kind of moving between levels between like the economic and the ideological and the personal but i also feel like one of the things that happens is that people don't learn how to manage their personal feelings and so ideology becomes a substitute for their inability to manage manage their expectations about how they feel about themselves and others. And so I'm thinking about the gaslighting episode. I think gaslighting is the result of men being completely and totally unable to handle their personal feelings about inadequacy or sexual performance or the tensions and violence of masculinity as an identity model. I mean, I just feel like there is all of this immaturity in American culture around social emotional development that has to do with our inability to regulate interpersonal feelings. I mean, from a Freudian perspective, I suppose it's ego, right? Like people have a real inability to see the contours of their ego and to manage their ego when it comes into conflict with needs or wants in the culture that cannot be delivered. And so when they want something, let's say you're at the bar and the dude wants to talk to you and so he buys the drink, then he is, you know, using this mode of financial power to insert himself into your space because he feels entitled to your attention and your response. And that is both economic consequence of unchecked growth that you're talking about, but then it's also just a complete lack of regulation inside the self. Okay, so maybe you've got some good executive function and you can manage your time, but you can't manage your feelings. And so it comes out in all these microaggressions and macroaggressions in between humans. Failure. It, it becomes such a huge issue for for people like you're not allowed to see let people see you fail or <laughs> you know fail yourself and oh yeah i mean you were talking about self-sabotage people do that all the time um in order to like manage their feelings like if you feel like you're gonna do poorly on a test as a student maybe you'll stay out all night or go see a movie instead of studying and then you can blame it on what you did instead of that you might have failed just on your own. I feel like that happens all the time in relationships, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about this, too, as an advisor of humans. And I think that, you know, for me, one of, one of the things that I do maybe well, but certainly intentionally, is that I feel like I provide models for how to recover from failure for my students. Because, of course, everybody fails all the time. It happens all the time. I, I was saying in the failure episode that the first book that we read in my rhetorical criticism seminar is The Queer Art of Failure because it's all about how failure can be recuperative and restorative and create space for new kinds of opportunities. 
when my students fail and they do fuck up sometimes really big it's like this is the path back this is what a, an appropriate apology looks like this is how you overcome it this is how you rebuild a relationship this is how you create goodwill you know here are all these things to do and i just i feel so frequently in our conversations on the podcast we talk a lot about social scripts and places where there are no social scripts and in some ways the interiority of growth as a personalized concept it creates a market but not a series of social scripts among people right so all of the growing is supposed to happen in the self-contained unit of the body <laughs> but it's not like a collaborative script process where we can learn to do that with other people like that can be done obviously i teach it but in terms of the way that the culture organizes our sense of responsibility to others as part of maturity and growth and aging that is just like not talked about you know it is in in the context of monogamous relationships but that's it you're allowed oh, yeah. to grow with like your le- one lifetime partner <laughs> yeah totally um grow together <laughs> oops yeah <laughs> didn't mean it not that well. yeah <laughs> but like if if that relationship is so important and like you're able to grow as a person with one other person why wouldn't that be true of like your friends and community and your mentors and (laughs) like that growing together with one other person as possible and also as a community but i mean obviously our culture doesn't organize itself in that way whatsoever no diet only diet only (laughs) we're talking about a culture that doesn't exist right well you know my mom said something funny to me the other day i can't remember what we were talking about i think we were talking about how i manage my time because it's so different than how she did um, when she was my age, and she's just like, when you get to my age, you know, you just don't, have, you just friends are just not as important. And I let it go um, because I had a bunch of ambivalence about it when she said it. Because I just, I don't think that's true. I think people just suck at maintaining relationships and overcoming space and time. And you know, I think, I think people choose not to potentially make new friendships as they get older. But I don't think it's because they don't want them. I think it's because they don't have scripts for how to do those relationships. And if you think about, like, popular culture, it's not like there are all of these movies about people meeting new friends in their 50s and 60s and having these, like, you know, 30-year 30, 30 relationships with them that are fulfilling and life-affirming and, you know, that promote growth. We don't have representations of those things in the culture. So it's like forming friendships that might help propel growth stops in your early 30s and like those are just supposed to be the people that you know for the rest of your life and then everybody else is just like the people that you work with and that seems to be really short-sighted honestly and i i just think when i look around at people who are baby boomers or right after gen xers they just strike me as so totally lonely because they're not building community they're not building solidarity they're not building new relationships that help enrich their lives and I think you're totally right. It's because the only model uh, unit for, you know, growth is the dyad of the heterosexual marriage. I think that's totally right. I think part of re- part of building a cooperative culture then has to come from resisting the model of heteronormativity. I feel like that's the point that we come to a lot. <laughs> yeah. Lean back from it and then lean back from the neurotic pursuit of personal growth Mm -hmm. as an end that will attract you a monogamous partner. (laughs) Right. Right. I think it's this personal self-help 
market that also then drives especially women to extreme lengths to find a husband and it's not working for them and so then they feel short shrifted like they did all this work and they didn't get anything from it and they must be personal failures when really it's neoliberalism and it's the arrangement of time and money and right. you know segregation and you know all the structures that we talk about all the time that are really keeping them from creating deep meaningful relationships with other people I mean I really just want us to remove this overwhelmingly positive connotation of growth <laughs> like from the definition mm-hmm. like it completely lacks nuance and when like that is the goal that you're trying to achieve it, I think ends up being really short-sighted i think i talked in an earlier episode about how um at a very young age i decided that i was just going to collect stories that i was going to say yes and do interesting things and had take risks and um have adventures and for me i think that has been a positive decision that i have made just like fill my head with a bunch of ideas from lots of different books and lots of different perspectives and lots of different fields <laughs> and lots of different standpoints and then to take risks you know that push me outside of my comfort zone and I think for me at least that has been a model that I have used to help propel what I think is useful growth for myself and for the community that I live in um, but I'm sure other people have different decisions that they've made to do that some of them more interior <laughs> and some of them more exterior but at the end of the day, I think I think removing that positive connotation about growth can help create a more sustainable and flexible notion of citizenship and community that is collaborative instead of isolating and insular and solitary. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.